Recorded live. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on TalkShoe Radio worldwide. Just talk, log into TalkShoe, all one word, search for the Northern Maine Landman, and there you are. This, today is Friday, June 1, 2018. Beautiful day in northern Maine. Humidity is down, which means the black flies are down. Black flies can't fly when the humidity is low because they need they need high humidity to lubricate their wing joints, just like helicopters. You can't fly without their bearings being lubricated, and black flies can't either. So when it's really got dark blue sky, chances are the Flies and mosquitoes won't be bad. When it's dreary and hazy and you can't see Malkitan from where you are, the flies are going to be out. It's just the way it is. Always has been. Well, if you get this show in time and if you are in Lincoln, Maine, this evening, Friday, June 1, at on Main Street, there's a establishment called the Golden Key. It's a senior citizen center, and they're going to have a kind of a, a light supper, kind of like a, a brunch type of thing, or d'oeuvres or whatever, at 5.30. It's supposed to go 5.30 to 8.30, and they're going to have karaoke. People are going to get up to the microphone and sing, and uh, popular songs, old-time songs, it's from the 50s, whatever. And they asked me to come. They asked me to, to sing, and I can't carry a tune in the bucket. I'm not a good singer. I took to sing hymns in church that I knew from years ago, but but uh, I don't read music. I don't uh, I don't listen to music on the radio. The singers are famous, but I've never even heard of these people. So, but I'm going to go in there, and uh, I said, well, I can't sing, but I can tell stories. I got a few main stories that are appropriate for this time of year that I I may uh, may entertain the people with them this evening. 5.30 to 8.30, Main Street, Lincoln, Maine. Something to do if you'd like to to have a good time. We also, a group of people in the Lincoln area, going up into Aroostook County and in northern Penobscot, got together, and we said, you know, we ought to do something for these kids. Because the, the kids that are on the honor roll graduate from high school and they go on to college or they join the military, you know, they're going to be successful people. And there are kids that go to the vocational school. They're hardworking. They show up every day at school just like they're supposed to show up every day at work. And they're marked down if they they don't show up. You know, I mean, people get sick, but but they're trained to be reliable. It's a big part of the program, and they can get a job when they graduate from high school. And then there's a BC student gets an occasional D, passes the course, but wasn't really good at the subject matter. They kind of move them through the system. These kids graduate from high school without employable skills. 
that is just flat wrong. I'm on a school board. Went to a school board meeting last night. Excuse me. It wasn't a board meeting, and not all the board members were there. Just went to a school informational meeting where the board, superintendent, and an architect presented plans for adding on to the newest school in the district. We closed down one school and simply gave it back to the town. The town where the school is located inherits the town, the building, if you close the school. And we have declining enrollment. We've had declining enrollment for years, and there's no reason to expect a sudden upsurge in childbirth in this area. They're closing down the obstetric services in two of the area hospitals. You're going to see midwives coming back and people having babies at home. When I bought this house that we live in now, 1983, people said, oh, I, I know where you live. I was born in that house. Okay. And then somebody else, I was born in that house. So I ran into several people who were born in this house. They said, wait a minute. You know, how is it that all these people were born in this house? Well, the lady who lived here was a midwife. In the middle of the winter, you know, the dad-to-be and the mom-to-be didn't want to be snowed in someplace out in the woods when she goes into childbirth. So they would come in and stay in this house where I live now. And when I bought the house, it's an old Yankee farmhouse, two stories, in a typical house. Nothing really special about the house, with one exception. It's got a really wide stairway to the second floor. And it turns out that there were at least two generations of midwives that lived in this house. So an awful lot of people were born in this house. And four men could pick up a patient and walk down the stairs of this house, go out the front door, load them into a vehicle, and take them to the hospital if that should be necessary. Well, they, you know, they have a lot of people born here. It's just interesting. And uh, you buy an old house, it's interesting anyway. You know, you, you want to make some changes, and you discover that, uh, you know, the whole house had had two wire wiring, with the exception of the clothes dryer. And they had a three wire outlet out there for 220 volts for the, for the clothes dryer. But other than that, it was all two-wire wiring, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's good, safe wiring. They wanted to sell more wire. They promoted the idea of three wires. And I lived in another old house in a different area, and I wanted to do some electrical modifications to the house, and I'm not an electrician. I wanted to do it correctly, so I went to Sears and Roebuck, and I bought a home wiring kit, home wiring book. It says, Wiring for the Farm and Home was the name of the book. Still got it. And it tells you how to wire up, you know, from, from the circuit breaker box or the fuse box, how to run your wires correctly so that it'll be safe. And, uh, and I did that. I did some minor home wiring. <laughs> and uh, it took me longer than it would take an electrician because I had to really study and understand every single step. 
And then they put an addition on them. They enclosed the old porch, put in a new floor, insulated it, and that's my office. And I wanted a three-way switch. It took me about four hours to figure out how to do a three-way switch. I followed the instructions, and uh, I got it done. It's a working three-way switch. A real electrician could have probably done that in five or ten minutes. (laughs) But the first time, it took me hours to make sure that it was going to work. And then it did work. And now I, I can do it. It wouldn't take me that long this time if I did it again. And I ran wire underground up to the barn. I ran wire underground with direct burial cable to the barn at camp. Ran wire underground from the house to the old garage down below. So you can learn this stuff. It's not rocket science, but it needs to be done correctly. And these kids that graduate from vocational schools can walk into a job and make a good living. I'm not saying they're going to get rich right away, but electricians and plumbers and builders are in demand in this area. Now, we've got people in their 70s still working because they can't find young people. Young people tend to go where the jobs are busiest and they make the most money, and that isn't Northern Maine. So some of them do leave. And they come back when they're 50 or 55 with money and with skills. We're happy to see them back. We just wish they were able to stay here for the 30 years in between. So we formed this group in Lincoln called the Northern Penobscot Activities Council. What is that? Well, it's a bunch of interested, responsible, successful adults that want to help these kids that were left behind by the school system. School systems should not be graduating students that don't have saleable skills. They can go to work at the Redemption Center sorting out bottles. There's things they can do. But they're not going to make a lot of money at this. They need to graduate students that potentially can work, have enough skills that they can eventually buy a home, start a family, and live here, make a good, honest living. And these kids know that they've been left behind. And they're sitting there on the park bench just talking, and you talk to these kids, and they'll tell you, you know, we really didn't learn much in high school. They know that. They know that they were abandoned by the system. They don't like it. And the parents don't like it. But the schools are comfortable with this because they haven't had to change since the 1950s or the 1970s. And they don't require, you know, high performance from the kids. The kids should be motivated by teachers. Some teachers tell these kids, look, there's no opportunity, there's no hope. You might as well just give up and try to get on welfare or whatever. And that's not true. There are opportunities in northern Maine. We've got a beautiful place up here. And we there should be kids forming businesses, seasonal businesses, where you do things... You can open up camps for people. 
and you can close down camps in the fall because a lot of people own camps and they really don't know how to start up the water system in the spring. And if pipes freeze up, somebody's going to go fix the pipes. And they should know how to properly drain the camp in the fall when they leave. They throw all the waters out of the system. And I showed a house yesterday. And the house was foreclosed upon a few years ago. And the house sat for two years, two winters, nobody there. Wallpapers peeling off the walls because exterior walls are really cold and the sun warms up the interior of the house. Moisture condenses on the outside wall. The wallpaper gets gets damp and moldy. And then the wallpaper peels off the wall all by itself. It's, a, it's, it's neglect. J.P. Morgan Chase, average time between foreclosure on the house and putting it on the market is 545 days. That's a year and eight months. Sitting there, two winters, nobody in the house. The house is not maintained. It, it's just... It's terrible. <laughs> Banks are not good property owners and property managers. They hire these outfits to come out and keep the lawn mowed and blow out the driveway. And these outfits know that that's working for somebody in California. And they know nobody from California is going to come and check on their work. So they don't drop follow the driveway. And they don't shovel the steps. And they don't mow the lawn. And this company called me and wanted me to sell the house for them. So I said, well, you're going to have to dig it out first. What do you mean? They're, they're plowing the driveway. I said, no, they're not plowing the driveway. And I sent them a picture of this house with a five-foot-high snowbank right down the road. And nobody had climbed over the snowbank since... It started snowing in December, and this is April. I mean, five-foot-high snowbank. I sent them a picture. Well, and they got a hold of these outfits, and somebody came by, and they dug it out with a, with a bucket loader. And you sure couldn't plow with a pickup. And they'd been paying, they'd paid these people to keep the driveway cleared all winter, and it didn't get done. Stuff like this happens all the time. You, you got to get local people that know about what to do in this area, this, what to do in this climate, how to keep your camp from freezing up. There are opportunities to, to do this stuff. And the people that end up doing it are people that in recent years, in past years, would have been retired. I work every day. I got an appointment at 10.30 this morning. The show was over 10 o'clock. I got an appointment at 10.30. I got an appointment at 11 o'clock. And I got to be in Bangor before 3 o'clock, stop off at a couple of places while I'm down there, pick up some real estate signs. Excuse me, pick up some campaign signs from Fredder at before 3 o'clock and head back up the road. Now, it's a busy day. So... And on top of that, I do a radio show from 9 to 10 Friday morning. Northern Mainland Band Show. 
And I'm going to be at a karaoke. So I've never been at a karaoke in my whole life. This guy used to do that in this area. And he'd go around and he'd do karaoke and have parties. And never been to a karaoke show in my entire life. But I did sing with Peter, Paul, and Mary one time. <laughs> 54 years ago in St. Thomas. I can't read music, but I knew a lot of the old folk songs. We sang some Joan Baez songs and stuff. So, it's smelt fishing time. And they, uh, I don't know how many smelt you can take. I've been smelt fishing about twice, three times in my life. That's it. I just never took up smelt. I don't even know what smelt that. But I do like eating smelt. My wife's family used to go smelt fishing, and we'd we'd have a whole big bowl of fried smelt. And, you know, this is uh, I like them. They're they're good. It's just like fiddleheads, you know. I like fiddleheads, but I've never picked fiddleheads. Just don't haven't taken the time to do it. But they uh. In the mill in Lincoln, they used to have a spring meeting and a fall meeting where the sales group would come up and talk about how the paper business was and different grades of paper and where they saw that there might be a future demand for this particular grade of paper. This other grade of paper wasn't selling quite as good as it used to be, so uh, you might not make so much of this particular grade. And the mill would tell them, you know, we've made these modifications changes to improve the quality of the paper and setting production records and you know things are going good. It was kind of a pep pep talk for everybody concerned, all the managers and the salespeople. And they went to the Rose Bowl on Main Street in Lincoln after this meeting. Went over there for a few drinks and talking about the market and talking about our competition and what we do about our competition and stuff like that. Somebody says, hey, let's go smelting. Dark. 10 o'clock at night, misty rain. Rose Bowl was closing up. So they smelting. What's smelting? Oh, wow. It's a lot of fun. You ought to come. Let's go. So they all piled in two or three different cars, and they drove out down through Springfield and Lakeville. And and, uh, back then, you you could... smelt in the stream that ran out of Cisadopsis Upper Dobsey into Lower Dobsey. So they're dipping the smelt in that net. And these guys are wearing suits and ties and dress shoes, okay? They're out there and the rain stopped, but it was still kind of dreary and dark and they're dipping a net in the brook. And these guys had just about decided there was no such thing as a smelt. And they'd be taking on a smelt on a snipe hunt and they want to go back to Lincoln. Wow. We're going to go back to Lincoln. We're going to go this way. So they they drove down by what we call Gorby Corner and out to the out to the west by Nicotowis Lake and Nicotowis Lodge, and on down through up through Burlington, and, and finally they going down these back roads. And these guys had no street lights, no wires, out in the middle of the woods, and hoping they didn't get lost. And these guys had never been off the pavement in their life, much less. Nicotowis Lake. So 
they finally get down to what we call the narrows, big big narrows, little narrows on upper upper Cold Stream Pond in Lincoln. Ernie Isles was the paper mill superintendent. And they stop, all three cars stop there, and there's two big culverts there going between Lower Dobsey and Upper upper uh, Big Narrows and Little Narrows. So so they uh, they get out. Ernie shines a light in the water. Hey, come on, get out, get out, get out. Come on, come on, come on. So they take a smelt net, and he tells this guy, stand on the end of the culvert with this smelt net. And the smelts are going to run right into the net. Okay, so they... Finally, we're going to get to see a smelt. Ernie went around the end of the culvert, and this culvert was right full of suckers. And the suckers spawned at the same time, smelt spawned. He took a rock about the size of a grapefruit, and he beat on the end of that culvert with it, and about 900 suckers hit that smelt at the same time. Bam! Off! <laughs> Salesman went head first in the lake, wearing his coat and tie. And he came up screaming because his the suckers are banging into him in the water. He didn't know what was happening to him, but it wasn't good. <laughs> so, so he finally they dragged him up out of there. And whenever a new salesman would get hired for Lincoln Pulp and Paper, they would tell him, if you ever go up to Lincoln, do not go smelting. Do not go with these people on fishing for smelt. Just don't do it. You know, <laughs> It was a warning. It was, <laughs> Don't ever do this with these people again. True story. When I was gone with my wife, we were before or after we were engaged, I'm not sure. We were going together. And we went out for the evening and came back to her parents' house and dropped her off there and, and her two brothers were there. Said, hey, you wanna go smelting? I said, Sure. Off we go. She just kind of rolled her eyes. And when she rolled her eyes, she knew something wasn't good. <laughs> something was not right. We took off and we went smelting. We went around and tried three or four different smelt brooks. And uh, finally, we got up near Winnesquam Lake. And there was a big brook that ran in there and it was, had a good reputation as, as being good for smelting. Well, smelt runs don't last a long time. There's only a few nights when it's really good. We got there, and the smelt started running. And he came up the brook. It's about 2 o'clock in the morning, misty rain. And the smelt are coming up the brook, and the guys are yelling, let him up through, let him up through, you know. So you get three or four guys in the same spot, and they're all dipping. The smelt can't get up by there. So they're going to get out of the way and let some smelt up through for the other guys that are further up the brook. I'm standing there with my father-in-law's smelt net. And it was... A brook that zigzagged down through the woods and little waterfalls and slippery rocks and roots and stuff. And I wanted to be careful not to snag my father-in-law's, my future father-in-law's smelt net. We won't damage anything that belonged to him. So we're dipping and we're getting smelt. And they're coming. So we're dumping all of our smelt in the same bucket, three people. A man came walking behind me. I didn't know he was there. He just walked down the brook looking for a good place to dip smelt. And I dipped a sucker about 14, 16 inches long, a big sucker, and I swung him out onto the bank, and I grabbed this sucker out of the net. I didn't want him to rip the net because it was a fragile net. I turned around, and I heaved that sucker up in the woods as hard as I could. man was walking behind me. I hit him right in the face with that sucker. Whack! 
you're out there at misty rain trying not to fall down, and all of a sudden this sucker hits you in the face going 40 miles an hour, smack. And the guy set his bucket down and looked around and I'm going home. I thought to myself, I'm going to die. <laughs> I mean, I hit this guy with a sucker going 40 miles an hour. I didn't die. Went back with our smelt. We had a good smelt fly the next day on Sunday. I bailed and went back down to New Jersey. stationed at Lakehurst. Back and forth with a sports car from Lakehurst to New Hampshire on a regular basis back in those days. There are experiences, humorous events that occur all over northern Maine. My father used to get a postcard in the spring every year from New Sweden, Maine. And the postcard simply said, the ice is out on Square Lake up on the Fish River chain. So he'd go up the following weekend with his friend, Frank Erickson, and uh, two Swedes going up to New Sweden, Maine. Well, their parents were from Sweden, both of them, my father and Frank. And my father spoke a little Swedish, and Frank spoke better Swedish. And uh, go up there and stay with these, this family up there. And, and they used to they used to make toast on a cast iron frying pan. My father brought them a toaster one spring. They they rented out rooms to fishermen up there. They weren't wasn't a guide service. They just rented out rooms. And uh, so my father and Frank rented a rented a room up there, and uh, they would make toast on the on, on a frying pan, just you know, not French toast, just regular toast. And the toast would get brown, and they flip it over, and that was it. That's how they made their toast. My father brought them an electric toaster. Well, you'd think they'd he bought them a television. They were so they thought it was so wonderful that he'd brought this toaster up. And uh, an old time toaster toasted but it toasted two slices at a time. You open it up, you toast one side, you open the door and toast the other side. You know, that's that's back in the forties. But they thought this was the most wonderful thing. Out there trolling for salmon going along shore, probably six or eight feet of water, trolling along there, and this guy up on the shoreline is yelling at him. And he, he was a working man. He didn't have a fishing rod or anything. It wasn't his lake. He said, why in the world are they yelling at us? He said, I don't know. The guy spoke French, and they spoke Swedish, and neither one of them was using English. So they, <laughs> so they uh, finally, the guy just threw his hands in the air, walked over, and then boom! This was an explosion. He was blowing up stumps, and there was an explosion, and rocks flew in the air, and they're strolling along, and all of a sudden rocks are coming falling out of the sky around the around the boat. And they say, "They go go fish someplace else." <laughs> These are no true stories from Maine. How could it get any better? The uh, in Lincoln, they have an annual River Driver Supper. Third Thursday in July every year, River Driver Supper. When they had log drives, the cookie used to go down the river first, and he would trim up the bushes and make a place for the camp, and they had flat boats 
they went down through and they had their supplies stuff on the river and the cookie would go down ahead and he'd set a pot of beans in the ground have bean whole beans and they lived on a lot of beans and bacon and ham and they uh, so he'd dig up the beans and they'd have beans it's a tradition and the congregational church in Lincoln, Maine has had the River Driver Supper for more than 50 years and it's always the third Thursday in in July. So they feed about 1,500 people, sometimes 2,000. Sometimes they sell out and the, they scrape the last of the beans out of the bean pot and that's it. I mean, it's, it's well attended. They've never been rained out. In one year, it had so much rain that the ground was too soft to drive a vehicle in there. So they had, they still had the bean hole bean feed, but they brought the beans to the church. <laughs> they served them in the cellar of the church because the ground was just too muddy to uh, to bring any vehicles down there by the river. But it's never been rained out. One year they had six or eight float planes landed on the river and taxied right up there and tied up to the bushes and and you know one person would stay by the plane so it didn't bump on the rocks or anything but but uh the float planes came flew into the river driver supper and uh, I've just seen that one year I've I've only missed a couple of years in the 35 years that I've lived here in this house I used to live down on Verona Island down near Bucksport uh, one year they scheduled some entertainment at the high school high school auditorium and I have to consider you know the planning involved in this because they they sold tickets and they're going to have a music and comedy show and one one of the groups that was entertaining that night was north of the Waldo Patton those, those folks are from over near Skowhegan area and Waldo Patton is Waldo County and this Waldo Patton was a large tract of Maine it was bought by a guy named Waldo it was his last name and uh, the townships are numbered north of the Waldo Patton NWP that's what that stands for and you've got you've got the Bingham purchases Bingham was a prosperous individual came to Maine and bought a whole bunch of land and and Bingham name Maine is named after him and uh, they talk about north of Bingham's Penobscot Purchase and BPP north of Bingham's other purchases and east of Bingham's Purchase that's how the number the abbreviations is the as to how these townships are numbered they didn't have township names yet a lot of these names were settled by people and they called it like Prentice for example Prentice still has an NBP number NBPP North of Bingham's Penobscot Purchase but it was Prentice somebody named Prentice settled the place they named Prentice but it still shows in the Dewan Atlas uh, with the original number most towns had original numbers. Some towns became incorporated. But after the bean hole bean feed, 
know, they had a show in an auditorium that seated about four or 500 people. Now, you got 1,200 people go to a bean feed, and somebody decides they're going to put five or 600 of them in this one room, following the bean hole bean feed. Just think, think about the after effects of such a decision. Came to the conclusion that the person that scheduled this is not from around here. So, I'll tell a few stories at the at the uh, at the karaoke event in Lincoln. So they have a band and people singing along, somebody playing a guitar or whatever. And then uh, they may even have some video there and turn the sound off and let people sing along. Don't know. Never been to a karaoke. It's a new thing for me. 5.30 tonight. The Girl Scouts in Lincoln were led by by uh, Al and Maggie Morrill. And the Girl Scouts had a had the, uh, a contest going in Maine. Of what what can your Girl Scout do to to create interest in your town and to bring in more Girl Scouts into scouting? So Al and Maggie said, well, "What can we do?" Well, I said, "Well, how about a winter cookout on a lake? And I'll bring my sled dog team, and all the girls can either ride in the sled or run the sled with me in the sled. Just can't turn a kid loose." with a dog team <laughs> with no adult supervision because the dogs love to run. They don't know whoa. They just go. They'll go till they drop. They just love to run. But we had a cookout, and we had the sled dogs, and we took pictures of the girls on, on, on the dog team. They sent that into the Girl Scouts. They got some kind of an award the most innovative thing because that had never been done before. They said, well, we got Lincoln Homecoming is the third week, third weekend in in July. We're going to have a parade. They never had a parade for Homecoming. The Girl Scouts said, well, let's organize a parade. The Girl Scouts will march, get the Boy Scouts to march, get the Get the Knights of Columbus and the Masons and the Kiwanis Club, and the Lions Club, and uh, the high school band, the junior high school band. You know, we'll have a parade. So they got together and they invited these things, and it turned out they got some. The antique car club came, and somebody brought a farm tractor and hay for a hay ride, and you know, the thing just grew, and it was it became. You know, it turned into quite an event, much bigger than they had initially intended. It was great. we got to have a grand marshal for this parade. Who are we going to get for a grand marshal? Well, it's going to be a, a woman, you know, it's some dignitary. Well, Olympia Snow was busy, and uh, they didn't know who they were going to get. Somebody said, well, Felicia Knight, is the first ever lady news anchor in Maine. She was a, the anchor on the nightly news, one of the radio stations down in Bangor. We'll ask her if she would do it. Well, she's a public-spirited lady, and she thought, this is a great idea. I'll do it. 
So they got the biggest Cadillac in Lincoln, put the top down, and Felicia Knight's riding along in the back of this Cadillac. And uh, having a fine time. It, it was just a very successful event. And the Girl Scouts got another award for being innovative and organizing. Because the girls did this. I mean, they had some adult assistance, but it was their idea, and they they got it going. They are the ones who contacted the various bands and the various fraternal organizations. They came to the Rotary Club and said, we want to do this. The Rotary Club put a, put a car in there with a Rotary banner on it, and, you know, just uh, to have a presence in the parade, and it was, it was very successful. Well, Felicia Knight, you know, being an anchor and everything, she, she also went out and did interviews, and the Bangalore Mall was going to open up. And they had not been open. It's brand new. They just built the mall. It wasn't as big as it is now. Sears, they moved Sears up from downtown Bangor on Exchange Street there. And they moved it from Sears up to, uh, uh, moved out to the mall. It used to be a good Sears down there in downtown Bangor. Buy a pound of nails if you needed them. But they went more modern, went out to the mall. So, Felicia Knight went out to the mall to do a live shot interview. And this was about the time that the that the uh, state of Maine decided they're going to reintroduce caribou. The last caribou was shot up at Shasun Cook Lake about 1917. And after that, there were no more caribou in Maine. We've got three or four caribou lakes in Maine and, and different caribou-related things. you got a town named Caribou because there used to be caribou up there. But Felicia Knight went out there, and they had a whole bunch of caribou that they brought down to the Bangor Mall, and they put up a temporary fence, and the caribou were in there eating hay and looking around at the people, and, and the people were looking at the caribou, and this pickup truck pulls up, and the family piles out, and from Washington County, and uh, this little boy, about six, seven years old, blue eyes, blonde hair, and uh, Felicia went over to him with this, this great big TV camera. You know, TV cameras used to be huge. Now you could take TV movies with your cell phone, but TV cameras used to be really big on heavy tripods, and they get over there, and Felicia says, well, what's your name? He says, Jimmy. Well, Jimmy, what do you think about all this? Jimmy, being from Washington County, looked around, looked at Farabou, looked at Felicia Knight, looked at the TV camera, looked at all these people, looked back at the Caribou, he looked back at the TV camera, and he says, Well, I'll tell you one thing, lady, if my old man was here eating on one of them suckers, Felicia looks stricken. <laughs> back to you in the studio, she said. <laughs> Mother grabbed little Jimmy, stuck him in the pickup truck, and they headed back to Washington County. Afraid they might get them tied in with their dad poaching or something. You can't make this stuff up. Live TV. Someday I'm going to run into Felicia Knight again. She went to work for Olympia Snow. No, excuse me. She went to work for Susan Collins down in Washington, D.C. as some kind of a PR person or something for a few years. And now she's working with some lobbying firm down there. Probably works right on K Street. 
Street lobbyists are, have a huge effect on our nation. It's not what the voters want. It's what the lobbyists want. Lobbyists are where the money comes from. The way it is. Donald Trump is trying to drain the swamp. And every time you drain the swamp, you turn over a rock, and there's another swamp creature. It's, it's, you know, if you couldn't laugh, you'd have to cry as to what's going on in Washington, D.C. We have a swamp right in Augusta. Angus King came to Maine to do a job on Maine, and he did. And all of a sudden, uh, things began to change in, in Augusta. When Angus King got elected governor, there were about five people in the Maine State Planning Office, and they just tried to coordinate stuff between different departments and, you know, so they wouldn't bump into each other. It you know, it's kind of a, a management organizational group. Well, the Maine State Planning Office went from five people to 55 people. Rammed into that house across the road from the Blaine House in Augusta. Angus King never lived in the Blaine House. He lived down on the coast in his mansion. He'd come up to Augusta on a daily basis. And he'd use the office in the Blaine House and he'd entertain guests and visitors there once in a while, but he never did live in the Blaine House. Most governors, you know, go go to Augusta, do their job, and live in the Blaine House. And part of that is, you know, it's rent-free, obviously, for a while that term, whether it's four years or eight years, you know, Paula Page is going to be out of there in June, in January. He probably has a house somewhere in Maine. I don't know where. Maybe it's Waterville. But uh, he'll be done next January. Still trying to get a few loose ends tied up in the legislature, but they got this person down there who was the Speaker of the House named Sarah Gideon. You should not be Speaker of the House. You couldn't organize a fire drill, much less main legislature. On the last day of the legislature, scheduled term, they were supposed to enact a whole bunch of bills and act on some bills that uh, to try to override Paul LePage's veto. And they had a three-hour pizza party in the Democrat cloakroom or whatever it is down there. And the Republicans are sitting there waiting for them to come back for lunch, and they never did. They just went home. <laughs> that was the end of the legislative session. They left all this stuff undone. You know, bills have been passed, but they weren't funded. He says, well, this would be good to do, but there's no money. Because when they write the bill, there's no money attached to it. This is just something they'd like to try. And if it gets tried, then they have to appropriate money. But guess what? They passed a whole bunch of stuff, and there's no money. So that's the situation we're in right now. The legislature may come back. The governor could summon them to come back. But I think this whole situation where the Democratic leadership in Augusta has been incompetent 
it's unfortunate for the state, but it's, in a way, it's kind of fun to watch because these people are clueless. You know, there was a time when John Martin pretty much ruled the legislature with an iron fist. It's it's an onerous way to do things. But things did get done, whether you like them or not. This legislature under Sarah Gideon is hopelessly incompetent. I mean, the Speaker of the House in the state legislature, just like the Speaker of the House, Speaker of the House in Washington D.C., who happens, you know, Nancy Pelosi, is uh, no, no, excuse me, Paul Ryan, the Speaker. He's he's done. He's he's getting out. He's going to be a lobbyist, to write books or whatever he's going to do. He's done. He's had it. He's walking away. Which is the honorable thing to do if you don't want to be there. Some people would get reelected forever, and they're just there, you know. What's the guy from New York was there for about fifty years down there? Didn't do much, but he was just kept getting reelected. He'd do whatever the Speaker of the House told him to do. Funny, I can't think of his name. He's been gone for a while. He finally reached a point where he couldn't do it. But he he finally got done. He was out of Harlem. Can't think of his name. That's all right. We need to elect people that have been there at least to visit, have some idea of how it works. We have a book of instructions. It's called the Constitution. And I put an ad in the paper. I'm running for the legislature, District 141. Biggest district in the state of Maine. Well, how is it that it's the biggest district? It has the lowest population per square mile in the state. It's huge. It's 113 miles from the Medway Town Line in Mattawankeg to Edmonds on the ocean where they have a 16-foot tide. Pops Cook Bay. They've got a state park down there in Edmonds, Tom's Cook Bay State Park, small state park, nice little spot. It's fun to camp there and just, you know, if you never see it or don't happen to be aware of it, go down there camping sometime and just watch that tide go out. There's a huge mud flat with a couple of brooks running down across it. Next thing you know, in comes the tide. you got to be careful if you go swimming down there. You won't you don't go swimming this time of year. It's too cold. But in August, the water warms up a little bit. You go swimming there, and the tide turns. You can't swim that fast. It will take you out to sea. And they put signs up warning you, but people, people don't read the signs. Ah, it can't be true. That is true. <laughs> you can't swim that fast. Lobster boats can't even go that fast. You know, they've got to come in at slack tide. The tide is high. They'll come in there. Tie up at the dock, tie goes out, ploop, boat sitting on the bottom, surrounded by mud. There it sits. Tide comes in, boat floats, back out they go. How you live, you live according to the tides down east. And people that are making blueberries and growing potatoes, you know, don't have to worry much about the tides, but you live on the water, 
you better know about these tides. And all of a sudden, it'd be a bright sunny day, and it warms up, and the water's cold, and you get fog. You got a 20-foot thick layer of fog on the water. You can't see 50 feet. Thick fog. And before they had GPSs, they used to just anchor because you flat can't see. Blue sky above you. Sunshine. And you can't see because you're in a thick layer of fog and it's damp cold fog. A little bit of a just tiny little breeze and that cold fog blows against you and it's a spooky thing. I mean, it, it's kind of weird and scary to be in this fog with a visibility of less than 50 feet and you hear boats They'll be going from buoy to buoy and you're hoping that they don't run into you. <laughs> you know, they didn't used to have radar. Now most boats have radar. My boat at least has a marine radio. I've, I've been down on the coast a little bit. And uh, it's it's important to have a marine radio because if you lose an engine, if the engine just fails, uh, you know, you need to be able to call for, for a tow. Otherwise, you're headed to Portugal. Because you're out off the coast of Maine, and you go due east. The next land is Portugal. Look at the map. It's not Spain, it's Portugal. Watch my watch here. Don't want to run off the end. Well, running for office, running for District 141. The largest town in the district is Lee, Maine, population-wise. Lee is an ordinary town, six miles square, six miles by six miles, 23,040 acres to a township. And by law, the selectmen are supposed to perambulate the town lines at least one every 10 years. I doubt that very many towns do that. Towns have honorary positions such as game warden, or not game warden, tree wardens. Tree warden, most towns, you know, you've got a big old elm tree and limbs are starting to fall off. And you, you know, it's dangerous. You've got to deal with it. And the tree warden arranges to have that tree taken care of. He does it himself, one or the other. It's kind of an honorary position. But somebody's got to deal with it. The town will elect a tree warden. The town will elect a conservation commission. These, are town, these folks will get promote conservation-related initiatives. They're also the people that, that try to prevent beaver dams from flooding the road. You know, you're not supposed to, to interfere with the beavers. You're not supposed to tear up a beaver dam, but there are certain beaver dams that need to be removed. And you don't, you don't need, to, you need to do this in an efficient way so you don't flood everybody downstream of it. And then you put in something that was invented by a man game warden called the beaver deceiver. So you, you put a pipe, a perforated pipe, up into the water, and when they start to plug up, build a, rebuild the dam. The water doesn't fill up. It goes out through this pipe, and beavers 
so far have not been able to figure out perforated pipes. You can't build the dam all the way around a perforated pipe. Eventually they'll get frustrated and leave. The beaver has to have a lodge that you enter from below the water because that way predators can't get in there. Wolves years ago used to used to dig up beaver lodges. When a beaver lodge is frozen solid, the wolf can't dig it up. But before it's frozen, they'll dig down through the top of a beaver lodge hoping to get the young beavers out of the lodge. They learn this from their parents. That's how wolf pack would work. I mean, a wolf would work at it for a while, and he'd step off. Next wolf would do a digging. They'd dig a down, hole down through the top of this beaver lodge and stick their head in, and the beaver would attack the wolf. With <laughs> but wolves would, would kill beavers that way. The way it was. And then the wolf was extirpated. Extirpated is not extinct. Extirpated means driven out. Dairy farmers would like to extirpate woodchucks. And back when I was younger, I used to shoot a lot of woodchucks. Its life skill is, is the safe and efficient use of handling firearms. We do that with uh, Project Appleseed. I'm the state coordinator and shoot boss and instructor. And, and I... Uh, I teach marksmanship and teach history. We've got one coming up July 21st and 22nd in, in Skowhegan. It's a shoot. We've got 18 shoots, 18 slots available. And as of Wednesday, I haven't looked yesterday and today, but as of Wednesday, we had 14 shooters signed up. We had four more shots to go. And I recently went down to West Cassett on the coast, and we have a potential site for a shoot down there. We've got to, got to talk with the landowner and uh, got interested people. We've got a couple of instructors in training down there that are enthusiastic about it. We may have a shoot on the coast. We've never had one other than Columbia. Columbia is down east. Like next town west of Machias, I believe, is, is Columbia. Great shoot down there, but we've Letting all the potential apple seeders we could find, and we haven't had a shoot down there for two years. We'd like to get back in there, but before we go down, we want to make sure that we're going to have the shoot well attended. It's expensive for apple seed to put on the shoot, and people you have to pay. You, know, you have to pay to attend an apple seed shoot. It's sixty dollars for the weekend. You get the best safety and marksmanship instruction in the nation. You just can't take a take a test, uh, a course. You can't study some subject matter online and become an apple seed instructor. There are other organizations where you can take a test online and you can go out there and you can hold a shoot and be an instructor and certified as a as an instructor simply by learning it off the internet. It's not efficient. It's not effective. And they learn some principles on, on safe firearm handling, and it's valid. And that's good. The more people we can get involved in, in shooting efficiently and accurately, 
in our nation, it's, it's an asset. It's a resource for the nation. It's important that citizens be able to handle a firearm safely and use it efficiently. When I lived out in dairy country, out in New York State for a few years, we left Maine, went out there and came back. Like so many other people, you leave Maine, save up, save up enough money to come back. And we did that. But boy, I tell you, when you pull into a dairy farm and say, hey, okay, if I shoot some chucks, oh, yes, please do. You know, and there's some up in this particular field I'd love to get rid of them. So you go up there and you, you hide behind the stone wall and just watch the field. And they come out in the evening, just before sunset, they come out and feed. Then they go back down their holes. And they don't want to be out there at night and get picked. They, they're, woodchucks are an endangered species, okay? It's, High in numbers, but they they live a hazardous life because bobcats, coyotes, hawks, owls, eagles all want to get that woodchuck, including dairy farmers. Dairy farmers are real busy folks. They don't have time to shoot woodchucks. So they're dependent on the sportsmen to go out there. And I had a rifle with a scope on it. I have some rifles with scopes on them. And they're all accurate. And I think it was Major Haskins that said the only accurate. No, it was Jack O'Connor. Jack O'Connor made the famous statement, only accurate rifles are interesting. So that's it. That's, uh, and I'd go out there and I'd get down in a prone position and get settled in. Woodchuck would pop his head up over the grass, drop back down, he'd move around in the grass. He'd sit up, look all around, you know, and, drop back down. You didn't have a lot of time to shoot them. After they hay the field, there's a time there when you can't see them at all. They're, they're below the level of the grass, and they go down their hole, and they have their young ones come back up, and they're feeding on the grass. And If it's a pasture that doesn't get mowed, and the cows keep the, keep the grass down, cows will step walking along in there, and they mind their own business, and they put their foot down in a woodchuck hole, and they break their leg. They lay there bellowing and hollering, and the farmer's got to come up and shoot the cow. The dairy cow is a valuable animal, and they shoot the cow, and then they take the cow off to the, to be butchered up and sold for meat. But that cow is, has much more value as a milk cow than it does as a beef cow. So the farmers really want to get rid of these woodchucks. And uh, we teach that skill. And my son just took a job with uh, L3. It's a company that makes the EOTech site, which is a, a, uh, it's a red dot site, but it doesn't shine a laser on the target. You look through the site, you put the red dot on the target, squeeze the trigger, and bam, you shoot the target. It's better than the old classic iron sights like they had on the Springfield and the M1, the M1A, M14, the carbine, all these iron sight rifles. Uh, there's a skill involved in using those properly. And it's, we teach that. And our goal is to be able to have somebody take a rack-grade rifle, sight it in, 
reliably hit a 20-inch square at 500 yards. 500 yards. Yeah, we call it the rifleman's quarter mile. And it can be done. Probably not with an M1 carbine. Because, you know, that thing's going to be up in the air about 12 feet and back down to hit the target. That may not be practical. But you can do without the 300. And blood carbine is effective at 300 yards. So was a 22 long rifle. Can we teach that? So, we've come to the end of the show. This is the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, Conscious of Maine. Broadcast today on TalkShoe Radio worldwide. Just log into TalkShoe, all one word. Search for the Northern Maine Landman, and you'll find it. I've been doing this for more than six years. So, there's a lot of shows back there. And you'll find that I don't contradict myself. What was true then, is true today. And there's news that's current events. And there's history. And there's geography. And there's staying off the thin ice. The water's cold, folks. If you go out in the boat today, fishing, wear your life jacket. Be safe. God bless.